and we are recording. Okay, hello everyone. Um, my name is Adam Cross. I am a licensed marriage family therapist in Southern California. I'm also a youth minister at my local parish here. Um, and today we are, I am talking um, with Dr. Peter Malinowski and um, we have a really good topic today on OCD and scrupulosity, which I think um, at least in my practice, is coming up quite a bit, so I'm excited to, to have this conversation. Um, so I want to, uh, I guess, turn it over a little bit to, to Dr. Peter and, um, you know, invite him to tell us a little bit about himself and um, souls and hearts. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to, I'd be happy to get into that. So I'm a clinical psychologist in Indiana. I've been a psychologist for 19 years, and the real passion, what really brought me into psychology was to really ground the practice of psychology in a Catholic anthropology, in a Catholic worldview. That's really what I'm passionate about, Adam. And so, so it's, it's not just about reducing symptoms. It's not just about feeling better. It's not just about functioning better. It's about um, shoring up the natural foundation for the spiritual life. So, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us grace perfects nature. And one of the things that I see all the time is that there's so much disruption, so much, so much disorder, so much confusion on a natural level that for so many people it makes the, you know, it makes the building of the, of the spiritual edifice, you know, it makes that, it makes that construction of the spiritual building that makes it really, really difficult. And so I kind of see uh, mental health professionals, Catholic mental health professionals, as kind of like St. John the Baptist, right, preparing the way for the spiritual life. We work in the natural realm, but we do that with an eye to improving the spiritual, you know, really kind of like being able to form that. And so souls and hearts, for uh, flowed out of that souls and hearts is a uh, is our uh, online outreach that grounds the practice of psychology it grounds it grounds psychology in a catholic worldview and that really reaches out to ordinary uh, practicing catholics that are interested not only in spiritual growth but in the natural overcoming the natural obstacles the psychological obstacles to that growth and who can also um use online resources. So we have uh, three podcasts that we do on a weekly basis. We have, um, we have all kinds of courses, classes, blogs. We have a community of folks, the Resilient Catholics Carpe Diem community that gets together to kind of work through things. And so it's a, it's a huge resource for folks out there. We actually bring together lot, dozens of, of Catholic mental health professionals. And so it's a, it's a great thing. My, the podcast I do is the um, Coronavirus Crisis Carpe Diem podcast, which is all about helping people to be more resilient in the face of this crisis. So, so it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a blessing to be able to be a part of that. And we've been going since about November of last year. So. Cool. Nice. And I like how you said kind of like John the Baptist, right? We're mm -hmm. paving the way and really pointing to Jesus. Um, what if we're, if what we're doing as, as mental health professionals is not at least indirectly helping people along the road to their salvation, then at best we're wasting our time. Yeah. <laughs> then at best we're wasting our time and their time, right? Um, you know, it's best we're wait, you know, so, so this, and, and what happens is that once you have that order in the natural realm, it makes it so much easier to deal with the analogous spiritual aspects, right? So people that have a lot of trouble with their earthly fathers, their, their natural fathers, for example, they often have such difficult times relating to God as father, 
right? So there's these, there are these parallels. And if you can resolve the, the disorder on the natural realm, it really opens the door to so much spiritual growth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we're pointing to the bigger question, the questions. Right. Um, because, and I think we find that in, in kind of secular psychology, um, if you take God out of it, if you take out those, those big questions of faith, life, and meaning, you kind of get stuck with, <laughs> I'm going to find my happiness. I'm going to find my truth right. type of thing. Right. And that is very um, <laughs> disappointing to say the least. <laughs> right. It's, well, in the fundamental, every practice of psychology is grounded in some kind of worldview. It's grounded in yeah. some kind of anthropology. And the dominant one in secular psychology is really hedonism. Yeah. It's how do you maximize pleasure and minimize pain? Yeah. There are other ones, you know, that are out there, but there's as many, there's as many uh, anthropologies as there are uh, mental health professionals, right? So, you <laughs> yeah. know, they're every, and, and it's really important because how you answer those questions of, you know, what, who am I, who is God, what is the meaning and purpose of life, how you answer those questions as a clinician has an incredibly powerful bearing on how you actually practice, right? So you can imagine if you go to a feminist psychologist, for example, you know, that practice of psychology is gonna be grounded in whatever that clinician's idea of feminism is, right? And, and so similarly, you know, psychology doesn't answer those questions. The questions around theology, philosophy, epistemology, and metaphysics, those are all, ans those are all, those, they're all kinds of assumptions that go in to inform the psychology. It doesn't happen the other way around. And so you've got to, you've got to have, you know, you've got, it's helpful to have, if you're Catholic, it's really helpful to have a clinician that, that really grips on to a Catholic understanding of those four particular disciplines. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And especially when you're dealing with something like uh, scrupulosity, right? Yeah. Because then <laughs> yeah. you're dealing with this interface between absolutely. a spiritual issue and a psychological issue, right? And so there are particular kinds of, of, uh, of themes, of, of topics that come up in therapy where that is, where that's vitally important. Yeah, yeah. And you think about it, a lot of people don't, they don't walk into therapy and say, hey, what's your worldview on this? You know, or what's your, you know, <laughs> what's your foundation? Um, but that, yeah, that's so, so crazy. But it's really important to ask that question. In Souls and Hearts, we have a question, we have a, we have a whole course on, it's a free course on how to choose a therapist, a Catholic's guide to choosing cool. a therapist. And there are interview questions that you can take to your therapist. And some of them, Ooh. I think sometimes people think are a little like, like, um, I don't know, maybe sometimes people think they're rude, but I think it's perfectly appropriate to ask your clinician, you know, to ask a clinician that you're interviewing to work with you, like, yeah. what his religious beliefs are, what her worldview is. Um, because, yeah. you know, like I said, that's going to have a huge impact on the therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? And I, yeah, I find, like you said, scrupulosity, but the other big one is sexuality, right? When that comes oh, yeah. to therapy, you quickly well, find out what, <laughs> what worldview your therapist is taking. So, Well, and, and marital therapy in particular too, right? If you just believe that, that marriage is just a, a social contract, you know, versus a, a sacramental bond, yeah. there's going to be a very different approach yeah. to how the clinician looks at that. Yeah. And, you know, and then that it's going to have an influence and in not only in the therapy, but, you know, on the, on the, on the clients as well. Yeah. No, so, very true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, I have like a bunch of questions swimming through my head, but to, to focus more on um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder and scrupulosity, um, you know, I know you, you've talked a little bit about not just treating kind of the, 
the natural things or, or treating the natural things leading to the spiritual, but um, not just treating the symptoms. What, what has influenced your approach and understanding of, of OCD and the scrupulosity part? Well, let me walk it back a little bit to when I was in grad school and I was like, you know, we don't have any agreement here on basic principles within psychology, right? That goes back to those anthropological questions. And so I realized in graduate school and shortly afterward that most of what we call disorders, you know, in psychology or in psychiatry are really uh, clusters of symptoms, right? So I see obsessions as a symptom and I see compulsions as a symptom, right? So to say that there's such a thing as obsessive compulsive disorder sounds to me like saying you have fever and abdominal pain disorder, right? So if you have like intense fever, you know, high fever and intense abdominal pain, and you go to the emergency room and the physician there says, you have fever and abdominal pain disorder. And he gives you a treatment for the fever and a treatment for the abdominal pain gives you, um, gives you uh, Tylenol to reduce the fever and gives you Percocets or some kind of painkiller for the abdominal pain. He hasn't dealt with the underlying problem, which if it's appendicitis, for example, uh, he's actually mistreated you. He's, you know, there's, there's a real missing of what the underlying issue is. So most of the disorders in quotes that, that we have in um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5, which is you know, what most clinicians use to diagnose, I think are just like particular symptom clusters. I don't think, for example, that uh, panic Panic dis- I look at panic, panic attacks as a symptom, right? So panic disorder, it's another symptom. You know, same thing with uh, generalized anxiety, same thing with uh, depressive episodes, same thing with manic episodes. I see all of these things as symptom clusters because we don't, within psychology, have a unified understanding of how human beings ought to be. Psychology can't really tell us how we ought to be. That's a question of philosophy and also to some degree of theology. So when I look at scrupulosity, I see that as a particular kind of, um, of symptom, right? A particular kind of obsession. Sometimes it'll have some compulsive elements to it, but I want to get to what caused that. I don't look at the symptom as the problem, just like I don't look at, as, at the fever as a problem, but I want to go further back the causal chain. I want to see what, what's way upstream of that. And the treatment then, the further upstream you can treat, the more effective the results are going to be. And I think a lot of the modern treatments right now tend to focus too much on the symptoms, too much on the downstream, and, and, um, and miss kind of the, the, the more important causal factors that are further upstream. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So getting to the deeper issues of what's going getting on. Getting to the deeper issues. And that's really often, um, it's, it takes more work right? Um, And sometimes there's initially more resistance, but I think it's far more effective because one of the things for the treatment of scrupulosity and OCD in general is that a lot of the treatments have pretty high dropout rates in the studies. They have non-compliance rates that are pretty high. There's a lot of ways in which folks that are struggling with scrupulosity don't want to quote, go there, you know, end quote with the therapist. And also I think some of the treatments, I think a lot of these treatments, exposure therapy, CBT oftentimes are pretty harsh on the client actually. And so it's understandable that the dropout rates would be high. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm coming in because I'm afraid of this. Okay, let's, let's do this or let's watch. Let's do this. <laughs> right. And I think it tends to violate um, a, a sense of the person, right? So when I think about a person that's coming in and struggling with uh, scrupulous, scrupulosity, I'm going to assume that there is a part of the person that is really scrupulous 
And it's scrupulous for a good reason. It, it has a reason for that scrupulosity. And I want to understand why this is happening the way it is. I'm not just going to assume that there's random brain chemistry or a chemical imbalance or all these other sort of cliches yeah. that people bandy about as though they were real causal factors. I mean, they may be in the causal chain. I expect that there'd be brain chemistry, but is that really the causal factor? I want to get at what's actually driving this. And when I've done that over and over again in my practice, what I find, especially with scrupulosity, is that there's something missing. There's a dog not barking. And, um, and so that's what I started to begin to connect in my practice. There was something really missing that I, was, that I never heard in folks that were scrupulous that I would expect to be there. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, yeah. And, and I guess part of that early on in your practice, what helped influence this understanding of, I'm not just going to stay with the symptom, but I'm going to go for that route. Was, was there any resources or any main influences? Well, when I was in grad school, I never got there. In grad school, I was really torn about whether I could actually be a Catholic psychologist. I had typical cognitive behavioral therapy training, and then I got into health psychology. So I was doing a lot of symptom-focused work. You know, how can I feel, help people feel less anxious? How can I help them deal with chronic pain? How can I help them with habit control, smoking, weight loss, things like that? Um, but I was like, this is terrible. I know there's other things going on that I'm not getting at with this. And it's also not very effective. I mean, because a lot of times if you knock out a symptom, uh, and Freud showed this, right? He was working with, um, he, was, he came up with this concept of symptom substitution. He used hypnosis to help with things like paralysis, uh, psychogenic paralysis, what would be called hysterical paralysis. So these were, these were housewives in Austria and Vienna at the time, you know, and they would experience like paralysis and he would help them over the symptom with hypnosis, but they would just develop another symptom, yeah. right? So, um, so I, I started to think, okay, like how do we get back to the root? And it wasn't until I, I was out of grad school and I started to work with a psychodynamic clinician um, who was much more of a depth focused, looking at depth um, that I began to see, yeah, there are ways that we can work with this. It takes longer. It actually goes a lot deeper. Uh, and that was sort of the start of it. And then I brought in some of um, uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand's phenomenology that was really helpful to me. And then a lot of Carmelite spirituality, a lot of especially St. Teresa of Avila, some St. John of the Cross, and then much later, um, uh, much, much later, St. Teresa of Lisieux. Okay. So, awesome. Yeah. But I mean, uh, the whole idea of this has got to connect somehow to Catholicism because yeah. the way it, the way it was taught in graduate school was like religion was like this whole separate other sphere. Right. And then psychology was over here and never the two shall meet. Yeah. Now you went to graduate school like 25, 20 years later than I did. But I mean, in my day, we, you weren't even supposed to bring it up. It was like you didn't even ask about it yeah. back in the day. Right. I, I went to a predominantly Christian private school and it was, <laughs> it was treated as a, like a hair color. Like, oh, we'll just consider that they're Catholic. Oh, well, you know, oh, they're Christian. <laughs> and I'm like, that's it. That's all. We're <laughs> um, and it was, it was very frustrating. And, and so, you know, most of my, <laughs> my yeah, development, like you're describing, um, happened afterward, happened, you know, right. kind of real, real time, real, you know, in the room type stuff. Um, with supervisors and different clients, but yeah. So 
Well, and for me, a lot of trial and error in practice, right? Because I was the only kind of, I was one of two really identified Catholic clinicians in Indianapolis. And I pulled people from Louisville, Cincinnati, Chicago. I had people coming from a long way away because they really wanted it ground. They really wanted therapy grounded in a Catholic anthropology. So some of this, I'm really grateful to my clients because we stumbled around, you know, trying to sort things out. Because back in those days, there was no Catholic Psychotherapy Association. There was no Divine Mercy University. You know, there was no, there, there wasn't hardly anything except the Society of Catholic Social Scientists at the time. So, um, so yeah, a lot of this is kind of learned in the crucible of uh, yeah. you know, making a lot of mistakes. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, in my work, since I do incorporate CBT and, and some exposure, I find that my clients, when we do those things, they, they want some symptom relief, almost like they're coming in, this is really distressing work on a few things um, and they will see some relief, right? There's just some basic steps, they'll see some relief, but then really my, my goal with them is not to stay just there, but to look a little bit deeper and do a deeper, uh, right? You know, I think, you know, part of less of my, my grad school experience, more of my, uh, <laughs> my postgraduate, my supervisor experience was really developing the attachment, the psychodynamic part. And so, I kind of see the looking for those core beliefs, right, about God, and, and I know you talked a little bit about right. that too, uh, or a lot about that. Um, kind of attaching that from CBT with almost like a segue to look into some of those those other images. Um, what does it look like for you and a client um, when you are right. going into this, you know, into these symptoms of OCD and scrupulosity? What, what does that look like? So, so one of the things, so I go back to that dog that wasn't barking yeah. and the dog that never barked was anger at God. One of the things I saw in client after client who was really struggling with scrupulosity was no anger at God that I could detect on the surface, okay. um, which is really odd to me because I thought to myself, um, here there, 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 there's this God that's so demanding, you know, that's so like picky, that's so perfectionistic, like where would be where would be the, the anger at this God? And one of the things I figured out very early on in my practice was that there's a lot of, that's very dangerous for folks that are really struggling with scrupulosity. Anger at God tends to be something that they, they don't express very readily and that it's often buried. Um, so, you know, things that I would expect to see, I'm not seeing. So when I, when I work with somebody that's struggling with this, I assume that they have a good reason to be scrupulous. And one of the things I don't like about CBT is that there's this, 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 the idea of irrational cognitions. Mm -hmm. And actually there's a pejorative sense to that, right? Like, and if you can understand why this part of the person believes that they have to act in this way, um, there's an incredible amount of relief that comes just from that. And from not pathologizing that, from not, you know, kind of deconstructing it, not trying to, not trying to, to, to get all sort of uh, judgmental about that or to assume that that part of them is the enemy that needs to be suppressed, yeah. right? What I want to do is really understand it because once you sit with those parts of the person and you really begin to understand their story, their narrative, there's a reason why they make assumptions about God, right? So this is what, what the heart of scrupulosity is for me is to understand how I see God in this essentially non-Catholic way, right? That, that God is angry, that God is upset, yeah. uh, that God is, um, you know, demanding, that God is perfectionistic. 
you know, um, and really work with the work with the client in a gentle way for that to be able to come out while also working with the other parts of the client that are frustrated with this, you know, that want to just get over it, you know, that just want to move on, right? There's a lot of conflict. You know, I'm a big advocate of internal family systems therapy. And so in internal family systems therapy, you, you have this, there's this sense that there are multiple parts of us that have different perspectives, that have different ways of looking at things, that have different priorities and different values, different roles within the system, yeah. almost as though we have these little personalities within us, right? Um, and multiple personality disorder, DID would be an extreme manifestation with these, where there's very little connection among these parts. Most people are more integrated. Um, but what I would say is that there's a lot of, of a lack of integration among folks that have um, scrupulosity and that have um, OCD in general that would be diagnosed with OCD. Yeah. So the question is, what is what's what's being protected against? And usually it's, it's the idea that I'm a sinner in the hand of an angry God. I've got to meet the criterion of this God. I'm really angry at this God, but I can't accept that. And so I actually reverse the directionality of that anger, right? It's not that I'm angry at God, it's that God's angry at me, yeah. right? So the anger isn't denied, but the directionality of it's reversed. Uh, and when you've got that, then you've got a God that's actually not worth worshiping. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> because, because it starts to look more like, you know, Quetzalcoatl, you know, the Aztec God, you know, demanding, demanding like yeah. human sacrifice, you know? And, um, and when, when, and this is, I mean, this is the reason why, you know, we have the gospel proclaimed to us, because whenever you look at natural religions, it always seems to me that natural religions devolve into uh, human sacrifice to an angry God. I mean, you know, you just see this over yeah. and over again, left to our own devices. That's what we come up with, right? So we need revelation. We need a revealed religion to show us that God is actually not like that. That's part of the blindness that comes with original sin and its effects. So... So when I when I'm working with this, go ahead. I'm sorry. But that mercy is kind of hard to grasp on our own, right? That we need the God. Oh yeah. Totally counterintuitive. Totally counterintuitive. Um, And so yeah, I mean, we're not going to reason our way there. Um, And so we need to actually have that revealed to us, and then we have to have that shown to, excuse me, shown to us in relationship with another, right? So a lot of gentleness with these folks and an appreciation for the struggle that they have been suffering with because you know they're actually in an existential crisis they're actually oftentimes very much concerned about being in mortal sin dying in mortal sin you know that existentially being destroyed for all eternity in hell I mean, and these, so we're at the high stakes. This is not, you know, these are not just folks that, you know, are, you know, disgruntled with their state in life or something. They're they're struggling at an extremely core level. And so the internal battles around these things are, um, are, are, are very intense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. These are, these are big questions. They're not just the like you said, small symptom questions or small relief questions. These no, are, they're not just, they're not, yeah, this isn't just some mild affliction, you know, that kind of gets them down a little bit, you know, makes them not be able to enjoy, you know, their spaghetti at night sometimes. And this is like, no, this is like, yeah. this is life and death. This is spiritual life and death. Yeah. And so there's a lot of desperation and a lot of polarization inside, right? A lot of internal combat. And so what I work to do is to try to understand all the different uh, all the different parts that are in a person 
And if you do that, you actually don't have to do a lot of symptom-focused work because as soon as the parts of the person believe that they're being heard, believe that they're being understood, believe that they're, they're being cared about, you, what you see is autonomic nervous system responses tend to really calm down, right? Like, and, and then you can help the client begin to love himself or herself. Yeah. Uh, and that's really critical in this because usually there's not a lot of that going on um, I've never seen a case where there's a lot of, you know, internal, like grounded, ordered self-love going on uh, in somebody who's struggling with a lot of scrupulosity. In fact, there's a lot of self-condemnation, a lot of contempt for the self, a lot of uh, self-berating, self-degrading, you know, um, because they're not measuring up or because they actually have the, sim the symptom at all, you know, and, and so calming all that down really helps there to be a sense of hope to rise up. Right, that there's a new direction that we've broken out of this, this, uh, this vicious cycle, you know, into some possibilities. Yeah, yeah, no, and I love hearing this because so much of the the work in this area is the exposure, the CBT, um, and and you're right, it's getting to the root of the problem, right? Um, right. You know, it, it's we have to solve the right problem, <laughs> right? We, we have to solve the right problem, and a lot of times when people come into therapy for this, right. Yeah. Um, a lot of times they're referred by priests, confessors that are frustrated, you know, because this is an extremely difficult thing to treat just on a spiritual level. Um, but what happens is uh, a lot of times a part comes in and they want to just get over my scrupulosity, mm -hmm. right? They don't actually want to deal with what's going on yeah. underneath that. They just want to. So basically a lot of times clients come in and they're, they're, there are parts that are in front, kind of like inside out, you know, the movie inside out where there are these like, you know, different parts of, of, um, I forget what her name was, uh, Riley are, uh, take, have taken over the control panel. You get, you get a part that's in front taking over the control panel that wants to squash, you know, this part wants basically to submit you know, that, that part just to submit and to not be heard and just be silent, kind of like sadness was put in that little circle, yeah. you know, the little <laughs> sadness part, just stay here and, you know, whatever. And, and, it, and, and as clinicians, we have to be really careful not to get sucked into that dynamic because then we're like um, only treating some of the client, not all the client. Right. And, and that, then that puts, that also pits us. We've been co-opted. We've been, we've been sucked into the agenda of a part of the person yeah and we don't want to get polarized in that so um so my job is to love the whole client right including the parts especially the parts that are misunderstood that are uh, suppressed that are rejected by the client you know by the parts that are in charge of the client now yeah so this requires a way of looking at ourselves that involves both the unity of the person like we're one person but there's also a multiplicity, right? That we have these different parts. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true because we're made in the image and likeness of God, right? God is three in one. There's a, there's a multiplicity, any unity in God, right? We're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves, which means that if we're to love ourselves, there's gotta be a relationship inside, yeah. right? So that means there's gotta be some kind of multiplicity. If we were just a single homogenous unitary personality, loving ourselves wouldn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what I was raised in in psychodynamic, right? The in psychodynamic training, my psychodynamic training. And I, I did a lot of psychological testing. I was an expert in personality assessment. I did this for a long, long time. 
and I was never satisfied with the one personality because I kept seeing all different kinds of things. Yeah. You know, and now I believe that a lot of the psychological testing, what you get is whatever personality was most dominant mm-hmm. when the test was taken, right? Whatever, whatever part was most dominant when the test was taken. And I still support psychological testing in certain situations like personnel evaluations, fitness for duty evaluations, seminarian candidates, religious candidates for religious life, things like that. But I think what happens is, um, you know, that a lot of times there's a lot that gets missed. You know, because there's, again, parts that are not being given expression. Now, when you deal with like the Rorschach and other kinds of uh, performance-based measures, what used to be called projective tests, you can get actually more of what's going on below the surface. Um, But with something like scrupulosity, getting at that God image, you know, the terrible, horrible God image that um, is, um, that's driving, you know, this sort of, um, this sort of, um, uh, fearful, uh, wretched obeisance, you know, this, 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 this frightened, you know, servile attitude of having to get everything right. That's what you got to get at. Because think of what would happen if you could just suppress the symptom and the person still believed that, right? If you took away all the symptoms and the person still believed that, would they even want to go to heaven? Would they want to spend forever face to face with a God like that? Sounds horrible, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? So, um, and yeah. that's the great dilemma when we've got these terrible God images is that we don't want to go to hell, but we also don't really want to experience beatific vision, you know, because of yeah. the fear that we have around God. We don't have that childlike confidence and trust that St. Teresa of the Zoo talks about. Sure. Um, so what I'm really focused in on as a clinician is what are the psychological aspects that get in the way of this, right? There are other aspects that, that other impediments that happen, spiritual impediments, moral impediments. You know, that's not, I don't work in those realms because I'm not a spiritual director. I'm not a confessor. I'm not, a, I'm not, I don't consider myself a pastoral counselor at all. I'm a, I'm a psychologist, but the, the psychological factors that complicate this in attachment history, you know, in our, in our relational history, that's the stuff. So then you can actually get at, well, what generated the God image? And then you can actually do some, um, some, some different types of activities to really correct those God images. And this is what we've been talking about in the Coronavirus Crisis Carpe Diem podcast. The last five episodes mm-hmm. have all been about 14 different terrible God images. <laughs> and then the three, the three episodes before that, we did more of a conceptual stuff. Uh, and now we're actually going to move into Mary images, which are really important, how we see our Blessed, Vir- Blessed Virgin Mary. That's what we're going to be getting into in the next week. And then I want to put together some, some work on how do we actually start resolving these. Right, because that's a lot of what my work as a psychologist is about. Yeah, how do we actually? And the one, there's one, there's one, I'll just tell you, there's one critical thing, uh, and that is can you experience God as He really is? Right, so the only that's the only way that this can be corrected. You can't study your way there. I've had plenty of clients, doctoral degrees in philosophy, theology, they've tried to study their way there, that's not going to work. The one thing that most, that most differentiates those in my practice that get better from those that don't mm-hmm. is can you hold on to at a gut level, at an experiential level, a providential God who cares and loves you specifically? That's the key element. Uh, and that's what we tend to avoid, right? That's what we tend to run away from because of we give into our God images. We actually believe that God is 
whatever that God image is, and then that's, we avoid him, which makes sense if that was true, yeah. right? So That's interesting, because that's also, I don't know if you've read Sherry Waddell's Forming Intentional Disciples, that's, it's a, a threshold of conversion, is that you believe that God is personal, and that God cares, and if you, yes. if we don't believe that, then we can't grow deeper in our faith, um, you know, so hearing you say that, yeah, that makes total sense, you know, right, we yeah. need that healing experience of our image of God to believe that he, he's loving, he cares, he, he is who he says he is, not who we just, you know, interpret him to be. Um, right. That, that, that healing is essential and that it is an extremely personal development and conversion that it can't be kind of only this intellectual battle, right? It can't right. be. It's, it's gotta be in the four zones. I talk about not just the mind, right? Where a lot of this, that's where you often start with folks that are struggling with scrupulosity is in the, in the mind, yeah. but it's gotta be in the heart. So there's gotta be these emotional aspects to it. It's gotta be in the soul, obviously, right? The spiritual aspects, but also in the body, right? Cause so much of the time we hold all this trauma in our body and we need to be able to unpack that too. So there is this, um, this what, what a psychologist colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Peter Martin, talks about. He talks about this internal evangelization. This is where our soul actually evangelizes the parts of us that <laughs> yeah. believe these things about God. And think about it, right? When you're in your dark place, there's a whole different way that you look at the world, right? And there's a different way that you perceive things. The vision gets narrow. Um, there's a whole set of memories that go with that, a whole set of attitudes that go with that, a whole set of impulses, a whole set of emotions that go with that. And so these, these modes of operating or these parts, as I would say, within an, an internal family systems network, um, I, I, we want to actually be able to reach out to them and understand what kind of experiences they're holding for us so that those can actually be worked through and healed. Right. Um, and when you look at folks that have pretty intense scrupulosity, there's usually some pretty significant attachment related wounds. And if there's not traumas, right. And a lot of times there's trauma, but if there's not trauma, there's at least attachment wounds that have led to the generalization of God having the characteristics of the people that wounded them. Right. And so to be able to heal that is really critical, right? And then you can actually be liberated from it. You're not just fighting against it. You're not just suppressing it. You're not just trying to overcome it. You're not just, you know, um, you know, papering over the surface of it. You're actually resolving the underlying, the underlying um, wound. And I think you're either going to do that here on earth, or you're going to have to do that in purgatory. I think purgatory is also a place where we resolve all kinds of natural level disorder that we didn't resolve when we were walking the face of the earth before death. So I think it's not just about, you know, the, um, you know, the restitution for sin. Uh, it's also about the correction of disorder, not just in the spiritual realm, but also in the natural realm. Yeah. Encountering God for who he really is. Right. And not, and well, and being able to, yeah, being able to, you know, having a solid enough natural foundation to be able to. Right. I like what you said about, you know, in CBT it would be called cognitive distortions, right? These irrational right. ways, unhelpful ways of thinking right. that um, without being super judgmental about them, that those do reveal important things about ourselves. And to even give clients credit and say, you learn to survive or you learn right. sense right. you. And, and it really is that they learned, right? That, you know, yep. there's something in their environment, like you're saying with the family system that they said, oh, this is how, 
I exist. This is how I this live. This is how I survive. And, and I credit those parts for having brought the person through those difficult times. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and like help them to survive. But usually they're trapped in the past, right? They don't realize that it's not 1986 yeah. or 1964 <laughs> or whatever, 1992, whatever the, whatever, wherever that, wherever that wound happened and that, that, um, you know, that, that part was forced into that position of having to take on that burden to, to, to bring the person, you know, to help the person through, to protect the person and help the person through that really dangerous situation. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of times parents don't even realize, right. How, how these things can happen. It doesn't require malice on the part of parents. You know, it doesn't require there to be this, you know, um, this, uh, this ill will or anything like that. It's just, you know, as, and I, I've got seven kids myself. I, there have been times where, you know, I've been really wounding towards my kids, you know, and not wanting to be, but uh, I think, you know, a lot of times little kids, parents don't realize, you know, if you're, if you are, you know, if you're six foot tall, like I am six foot two, like I am, and you've got a toddler that's standing, you know, two and a half feet tall, you know, it's like, it would be like me looking up at somebody who is like 12 feet tall. <laughs> you know, bigger, huger. I mean, it's massive, like a giant, right? And to, and we don't often realize the way that the impact that some of our our words, our tone, our you know, our physical bearing, all that has on kids. Absolutely. And it's only something that we're starting to understand now. Yeah. So yeah. So how? And so I know in your podcast you talk about God images, God concepts, and even those self images, right. self concepts. How does how do you begin to heal those and and I guess also, how does that anger role, healing that anger, um, right? You know, at the controls. How do you approach healing within all that? So let's just define what a God image is first, because we haven't been real clear about that. Yeah. So the God image is how my heart feels God to be in the moment, right? My God image is who my emotions tell me that God is. You know, it's very subjective. It's driven by factors that are outside of my awareness, uh, you know, often, and it can be very far away from who I profess God to be. Right, who I profess God to be, you know, is like the catechism definition, right, or the Baltimore catechism definition. Yeah. Right? That's who I endorse, you know, that's who I profess. But my God image is, it's really subjective. It's really right brain. It's really intuitive. It's that sort of that, that, that sense, that felt sense of who God is. And so that's always developed experientially, right? So the way that, that heals is also experiential. Right? You're not going to solve this like you could an algebra equation, right? We're going to have to go back into contact with the living God. So there's kind of two ways that I think about doing this. One is as a clinician, right, for them to experience something of the love of God through me, okay, because sometimes it's just too terrifying to actually approach God, right? So to reflect the love of God through me, uh, to be a conduit of that. And then secondly, to be able to um, experience it directly in relationship with God, right? So sometimes we'll use the saints too. A lot of times the God, the father could be, you know, especially you imagine a situation in which, you know, there has been uh, sexual abuse by dad. Okay. Um, very hard to do father work immediately with that. I will often work with, um, sometimes in those cases, you can't even use a, a human being. So I'll use angels, right? The person's guardian angel. We okay. experience the love of God through that non-corporal being, no chance of being, you know, sexually abused um, there. Um, but um, the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph is a very common one that I will bring in. And um, 
and uh, and begin to work with uh, with how that part experiences, right? So this is what you know I mentioned. Uh, Dr. Martin talks about this internal evangelization is sort of bringing bringing God into or bringing the love of God into could be through another person like myself into these spaces where it has never been before. And it puts a whole new spin on like the people that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. You know, like if you think about all those readings that we hear in Advent, like the good news is actually being spread within our system, not just to the parts that go to, you know, that experience God in prayer, go to mass or, you know, carry out our religious obligations and so forth, but to the parts that really don't know God, right? Because they've been so separate, so separated. Um, so a lot of that is through prayer. Uh, some of it is through like guided imagery. Some of it is through um, some body work uh, where you might uh, really just notice what's happening. Some people call this uh, mindfulness. I think it's a problematic word for a number of reasons, but I will, I will think about it in terms of recollection, recollection on a natural level. Um, you'll talk about using the faculty of the imagination to be able to see some of these things. Um, and that's actually gotten gotten really popular in the uh, in the trauma literature generally, right? Uh, there's a lot of talk about internal guides, you know, for example. And I have even seen secular secular uh, approaches that talk about uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary as being one of these guides. Now they will look at the Blessed Virgin Mary in that situation as sort of being like a part of the person. They're finding their own inner wisdom or whatever. Sure. Um, I don't look at it that way, right? I'm saying, no, nope, she's, you know, she shows up, she's there, she's, you know, she's your mother, right? So, um, and so um, I don't look at her as like one in a lineup along with Gaia and, you know, Vishnu and, you know, whoever else, you yeah, know, it might be a spirit guide. But the, uh, the, 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 the connection there in the experiential relational um, contact is what's healing. I will use imagery, for example, of like a, a, a an English garden, you know, with an eight foot uh, stone wall and a wood door with like a little peephole in it. And you can, you could talk to Jesus outside the door, right? And just the part could talk to Jesus outside the door. See that he doesn't burst in, right? For example, and take over and start criticizing or whatever. Sometimes you get a little bit of that, but then you're figuring, oh, that's the God, that's the God image, right? That's not actually who God really is. So you kind of work with that uh, clinically. Um, and we're actually figuring out ways in souls and hearts to, to actually bring some of this stuff to life. Uh, so you don't actually have to do it in therapy. It's not just a purview of therapy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, to, to really enter into, into relationship. And it's one of those things, Adam, where if you seek, you're going to find. But mm-hmm. what happens is a lot of times people just give into those God images and they flee. And if you flee from God long enough, you know, he's not going to intrude. He's, he's going he's gonna to respect the the lack of desire right and that's what i think actually leads a lot of people to um to uh to 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 wind up you know in a really terrible place is because they fled from god they didn't understand who god really was um they didn't trust enough that he is who he says he is you know and so a lot of what i'm doing in that kind of a position is just sort of standing by while the client just tolerates a sort of titrated uh increased experience of who god is and then also helped correct like and so i'm trained in a variety of trauma modalities i'll sometimes use emdr in this um i'll sometimes uh there's a lot of ifs trauma stuff that i will do but the the idea of like could 
this part here, Christ say something different, right? And I actually believe that God works in these, you know, that works in this therapy, like he's actually present. I can't, I can't state that definitively. I'm not a, I'm not a spiritual director, but, um, but you can tell when something really seems to be um, from God versus something that seems to be coming from the, from the part of the person or the, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes you may even get, um, you know, some external temp temptations or things like that. Um, there's ways to navigate some of that stuff in uh, internal family systems as well. So, yeah, and I think what I'm hearing too, is it, it's all grounded, like you said, on this foundation that uh, we are made in the image and likeness of God, that we can have a relationship with ourselves. Um, right. And that we need to evangelize ourselves too, that we need to take the gospel to those parts of us that haven't received it or haven't yes. received it fully or the parts where, you know, it might be buried down deep that, um, and, and even a part of scrupulosity sometimes that can be like, well, I'm supposed to go out and evangelize other people. And, you know, I'm supposed to be a good Catholic or whatever that might look like, but it's, you know, we have to start with ourselves, right? We have to, um, and I like that image of, you know, maybe just opening a slot for Jesus to look in. Right. Um, right. Really being, you know, hopefully opening that door and saying, yes. Um, I think that that's a beautiful approach to it. And so I, I think the, my last question would be in, in all this is, you know, since CBT is, is usually the predominant approach to it, do you see any over overlap or integration in looking for these God images in in any of these kind of uh, behavioral uh, approaches i mean i think i think there's probably more overlap in clinicians work like like good clinicians tend to look more similar in what they do than how the treatments look you know on paper right um so to the degree that a treatment you know a given modality is is or a given theoretical orientation is helping there's going to be some similarities right yeah. and it's clear that some clinicians using CBT have had good results with scrupulosity. I don't know how much of that I would attribute necessarily to the CBT itself. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm not a huge fan of CBT yeah. um, um, because I see it as too surface oriented. Um, I see it as too, and I, and again, I don't like the idea of irrational cognitions. I don't, I think it does uh, exacerbate some suppression, right? We're going to, we're going to override these thoughts and we're not going to really understand where they come from and stuff like that. So, um, and I have frankly a little bitterness about the way that I was taught CBT and how that was sort of rammed down my throat when I was in graduate school. Um, and, you know, this is the prime modality and stuff like that. So some of that's my own stuff. Um, but, um, but you know, the exposure therapy, I think a lot of that, you are exposing what the real issue is. You're not just sort of forcing the person into confrontation with their, with whatever they're scrupulous about, but you're taking it back. You're actually exposing, you know, you're bringing to the surface, right? It's a different kind of exposure at a deeper level. You're bringing to the surface, like what the real problem is, which is in the understanding of God in the understanding of the self and then the understanding of the relationship between self and God, right? Because I think what a lot of folks with scrupulosity are going for, they're not even going for the uh, love of God. They're actually going to being tolerated by God, right? Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. they're actually being going for not being destroyed by God, 
right? And that's kind of a hard thing to get really excited about, right? Can you imagine the, the evangelization? Yep, I love God. He doesn't destroy me. You know, that's, you know, it's got my heart, you know. He doesn't um, destroy me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lightning bolt. <laughs> that's right, you know. But I think a lot of times that's what it's like in scrupulosity. I mean, it wouldn't be articulated that way necessarily but a lot of this stuff got laid down before the person even had the capacity for representational thought before they could even put you know uh put experiences into words right so a lot of the stuff is pre-verbal and just being able to be with it in a way where it could be given a name where it could be described it could be put into words now we can bring the intellect and the will into this and I think a lot of times what we, what we do is we get caught up in the, because a lot of times people that are scrupulous are much more left brain. They're much more conceptual. They're much more analytical. They're much more uh, about thoughts than they are about feelings, you know, and, and clinicians can sometimes go with that and be sucked into that, that like one hemisphere, right? That one, that one kind of way of looking at things. And I think we need to actually very gently, um, you know, bring in these other elements and, uh, and then I think you can have a lot more success. It's a lot gentler. It's a lot more comprehensive. It's more holistic. Um, it appreciates these parts, um, you know, but I think sometimes folks that have these, um, have this kind of style, they don't like the idea that there are parts, right? They don't want to start opening that, you know, that's really, you have to deal with that. There's a lot of resistance to, to, to the idea of multiplicity of self, but I would say that comes from the parts that are generally in control, right? They don't want to cede that, that primacy, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, because they're afraid that if that happens, then, then all Hades is going to break loose inside, right? And they could actually wind up worse off than they are now. Yeah, I mean, it's scary to think there's parts of you that you haven't looked at and that might be, you know, moving around and, you know, inf influencing you and you haven't looked at that. that that's pretty anxiety. Look at the example of the saints, Adam, right? What do the saints say? Do they say, you know, actually, by the grace of God, I'm very ordered inside. I have <laughs> achieved a pinnacle of human experience and functioning. <laughs> No, what do they say, right? They talk about the disorder inside, right? And it's not because they're more disordered than the rest of us. It's because they have a deep sense of the love of God and the acceptance of God and the mercy of, them, of God that allows them to see themselves as they actually are. I make the argument that in the Garden of Eden, um, you know, we know what happened to the body after original sin, right? We know that death entered the world and sickness, illness and pain and suffering and a, a whole different physical kind of labor, right? Work, pain and childbirth. There was a devastating impact on the body as a result of original sin. And I argue that the same thing happened to the psyche. The same thing happened to our psychological functioning by analogy. I make this argument, only we don't see it. We don't understand it in the same way because there's a lot of blindness that comes in to being able to understand really where we are psychologically. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it takes a lot of humility to be able to acknowledge, you know, the, 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 the disorder that we have. Uh, it takes a lot of um, trust, you know, and confidence in God to be able to get at that depth. And that's what the saints are reflecting, you know, when they talk about how they see themselves. Yeah, that trust piece is huge, and the patience, and the, you know, the the willingness to go into those dark places. And I think that going back to what you said in the beginning of, you know, and, and maybe this is kind of where we can close it a little bit is not being afraid to 
go into therapy looking for that worldview, for that perspective, having those interview questions, having, you know, having an idea of what you're looking for is so critical so that you can build a rapport, build a relationship with your you know, clinician, and then you right. can build that trust when it does get scary. I would look at the clinician as a, as a, as a guide and companion on an adventure. Yes. Right? That's how I really look at it. Not as some white-coated medical professional that's going to give you the answers, right? Well, you lie on the table, you know, and passively, and, you know, and there's some sort of pathologyectomy where he just opens you up and takes out the pathology or whatever while you're under anesthetic. It doesn't work like that, right? It's much more, much more uh, of, of, and that's how we look at souls and hearts too. You know, it's like, it's to be, we want to be like with people on their journeys to, 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 to be able to have that connection. So they know they're not going through this alone. Um, and to be that bridge, to be able to connect them to themselves and also to, uh, to God. Right. Um, you know, the, the, especially with this, this God image stuff, right. It helps a lot to have somebody say, no, it's okay. You know, God can take it. Like he can yeah. hear what you really think and feel, right? Um, and you know, can you can you can you bring that to him and see what happens? Yeah. Maybe it's not going to be what you expect, you know. Um, yeah, so. I, and I love that approach. You know, therapist, psychologist, we don't have all the answers, right? We can't just. There's no simple fix, but it really is us walking with our clients. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully we're walking towards Christ. <laughs> you know, the therapist is walking and we're walking together. And yeah, we're walking really as they build that relationship with themselves and, and looking for God in that process. So, so hearing that as a foundation, that, that really speaks to me. That, that's awesome. Um, yeah. So I, this has been great. You know, I really love talking with you and I'm hoping we can maybe do this some more and yeah it's been great we'll see what you're we'll see, you know i'm i'm curious as to what your viewers and you, what your listeners think of this kind of thing if this is interesting to them you know if this is helpful um yeah. you know i you have a place where you get feedback uh imagine on youtube right people can write, leave comments down, if they're watching it it's down here somewhere there's a comment <laughs> feel free to comment hit that like button that subscribe button um, whatever other buttons are down there. But yeah, please leave questions, um, comments, and um, Dr. Peter, where can they reach you? Um, I'll, I'll give you my direct email address. Um, yeah. So you certainly, well, you can always go to the website, soulsandhearts.com, right? Soulsandhearts.com. And then my, my email address, the one I use is crisis at soulsandhearts.com. Uh, you can reach me at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. And my cell phone, 317-567-9594. You know, you can awesome. text me or give me a call um, if you have something you want to you want to say. Um, but yeah, definitely want to bring together people. It's, it's an overlap with what you what you guys are doing here on the color of thought, right? That we want people that really want to bring together the uh, the natural and the and the spiritual realms, right? And look at that interface. So yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah, and maybe we can get we can get Daniel on here from Color of Thoughts. I think we should get him. I think we should get him on here. You know, and then uh, you got to write a blog for us too. You know, get you on uh, get you on Souls and Hearts. Get you a little, little uh, exposure over there too, Adam. So, all right. It's been well, great thank to be you so here. much, thank and thank you everyone for watching. And again, if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to comment, email us, and reach out. But thank you, and God bless. God bless.